I, I memorized this when I was young. It was on repeat in the church that I attended for a time, and uh, it was in the King James Version. And so uh, we might, if we just repeat it from memory, have a lot of different versions going on. And so we're going we're gonna to read the ESV version uh, together. Okay. All right, ready? Let's read together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Last week, Jimmy shared with us out of the word and uh, he covered the uh, verse 9. Uh, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And uh, Jimmy pointed out an, uh, uh, a really important truth, that this is a petition, this is a, uh, a request, that God's name might be revered or seen as holy. And uh, it is our desire, isn't it, that people would find the name of God holy, that they would bow to him, that they would... Uh, that, that we would. Um, it's, it's about us and it's about our surrounding. It's about people. It's, this is our desire. That's what the whole point, isn't it? That it's our desire that God's name be holy and revered. And we have that desire, uh, not only uh, for, for ourselves, but uh, for, for the world and for our friends, for our family, for our church, of course. And so, uh, but then the other reality that's very important is that God is called our Father, and uh, it's such an intimate relationship with him that we get to call him Father. Okay, and so we move into this next section, the next petition, which is your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. I'm going to ask a, a few questions and then we're going to answer it. Uh, before we do, here's the kind of the schedule of uh, where we're going to be. And uh, you can see where we are today. It is outlined for us all the way until the 12th when we're going to conclude this time together. So you can kind of see and know where we're headed and what we're going to be studying and maybe think about these things ahead of time. I did put it in the digital bulletin, this schedule. So if you want to see that and kind of keep up, it's, it's in the digital bulletin for you there. Just click on the Wednesday night uh, tab there. Okay, so we're looking at your kingdom come uh, tonight. It is closely related to your will be done. So, uh, as we're talking about these things, know that there's going to be some unanswered things. There's, there necessarily is going to be. So, uh, we're going to talk a lot about God's will uh, tonight, but we're going to talk even more about God's will next week uh, where, when it says, your will be done. So, your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and uh, we're just going to kind of answer those as we go through the night. The first question that I think is very significant is that we ask, why do we pray? When we pray, just think about it, your kingdom come, why is it a prayer that we need to pray? Just think about it with me, and why might I say that? 
Why is saying your kingdom come a prayer that we even need to pray? Is God just dependent on us for our prayers to such the extent that if we don't pray this, that his kingdom is not going to come? Is God dependent on humanity to see his will through? So then why would we pray your kingdom come? And another question we might ask is, if God's going to do this anyway, then why pray about it? And that leads us to a bigger question. If God's going to do what God's going to do, why pray about anything at all? That's what actually, we, we have to at some point ask that question. If God is truly sovereign, why do we need to pray at all? Uh, we've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm just, I'm reminded here because I was looking at uh, Isaiah. We're about to look at a reference from Isaiah. Do you know how long ago it was when we started our study on Sunday mornings through the book of Isaiah? Anybody know? Huh? Mm-hmm. Okay, Irma cheated and <laughs> said four years ago. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It, was, it, was, uh, it was July of 2018. Uh, so what that means is... Uh, if you haven't been with us for that long, I'm, uh, a lot of you in the room have, but some of you have not. Uh, and so you were not here for a big conversation uh, leading through uh, the first half, a little bit more than half of the book of Isaiah. Um, but either way, we've talked about this question before, and some of those questions came up throughout the book of Isaiah, asking the question, why do we pray at all? If God truly is sovereign, what I mean by that is, if God is truly all-powerful and in control always, and he's going to do what he's going to do because he has a will, he has a desire, and God has the power and the might to see his plans through, so God has his plans, and he's going to do his plans. Nothing can get in the way of his plans, not even your prayers to the opposite of his will, certainly, um, then why do we need to pray about everything? Because whatever's going to be is going to be. So we have to come to a conclusion here. We have to resolve this in our minds. Otherwise, what's going to happen? You're not going to pray because you don't see it as important because God's going to do what God's going to do. And uh, yeah, it's a temptation, isn't it? It's been a temptation in my life. I have such a high view of God's sovereignty that sometimes I, I think, listen, I, you got this. I mean, you can do what you're going to do. I could pray that it go this way, but I'm not intelligent. I mean, you, I, it, it doesn't matter. Why, why even throw the options out? God, just do what you're going to do. But then if I say, God, do what you're going to do, why even pray that? Because he's going to do it. So there is an answer because we do pray and we should pray, right? Because Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. So there is a reason. There is a reason for us to pray that God is sovereign, and yet we pray. Both are true. So then what do our prayers do? This is good, these are good questions. Good questions bring about good answers, right? Bad questions don't always bring about bad answers, but they might bring about unhelpful things, right? Uh, so we want to ask really good questions. So I'd like for you to, let's just turn, uh, hopefully briefly, to... Isaiah chapter 37. Isaiah chapter 37. I want you to see something. What I'm doing is I don't want to just give you a blanket answer um, and say, well, this is why. I want to illustrate it from the text with a good example 
and say, and, and say to you then, see, this is how prayer works. And we see all, all very various elements of prayer in this story. And that's what I just want to illustrate by taking you to this particular text in Isaiah 37. How does prayer and God's sovereignty, how do these two realities work together? Are there any examples of that in Scripture that we can kind of start to look at and maybe understand a little bit better? And there certainly are. So one that I really like, and it actually is really plain in the example, is from Isaiah 37, if you're there. Look at verse 18. So the Assyrians, remember, we got to get caught up on this stuff anyway, right? Okay, we're about to be in Isaiah. So the Assyrians in the first half of the book are, are really uh, the major world threat, world power. The Assyrians are the, really the bad guys that everyone's afraid of. So at this particular time when in Isaiah 37, the Assyrians have already captured and overthrown the northern kingdom where 10 tribes of Israel were. And so, uh, they, so the southern kingdom in Judah, uh, which was in Jerusalem, it, it kind of the epicenter there was in Jerusalem. And so they saw what was happening in the northern kingdom. And they saw that Assyria came in and uh, took them over pretty easily. And now Assyria has come down. They came from far north. They hit the northern kingdom first. And now they're just continuing on down toward them. And they're scared that they're going to do the same thing to them that they did to all their brothers, right? They're terrified. And who's in charge here? Well, Hezekiah, king of Judah, is in charge. And so he uh, turns to the Lord, and he prays because he's terrified. So look at Isaiah 37, verse 18. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have, all, have laid waste all the nations and their lands, They've cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So just stop right there. He's saying, I get why they were destroyed, because they served false gods. But why us? Because we don't serve a false god, so why would we be destroyed? So he says in verse 20, So now, O Lord God, save us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So if the Assyrians can take out everybody who's serving false gods, but they can't take us out, that says something about the God we serve. So he's saying, Lord, I have a good idea. Hear me on this. Just hear me out. I know they're coming. I can see them coming. They're going to just, but just let me throw this out there. What if, what if they don't destroy us? What if, what if that happens? And what if, in doing that, you can somehow use that throughout all the nations everywhere uh, so that we're not destroyed, but the people of the world can see that we weren't destroyed, and that would be good for you. So let's try to maybe think about it that way if we can. Please, Lord, help us, because maybe that could possibly work. Maybe. Can we do that? Because it sounds like a good plan to me. I don't know if it sounds like a good plan to you, but that's what I'm asking for. What if they don't destroy us? And what if that's a good thing for you and for your name? How does it play out? Look at verse 21. Then Isaiah, what is Isaiah doing? Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah in a, in a letter. He sent a man with a letter saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen to the next four words. Because you have prayed. To me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and then continue on. Okay, 
Whatever is about to follow is for what reason? Because he prayed. So just notice that. Take note. Got it? Why is the Lord about to do what he's going to do? Because Hezekiah prayed. Now let's continue on. Isaiah 37, 26. Just jump a few verses with me. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. What? I thought you were doing it because Hezekiah prayed. But then he says, no, I'm just doing what I had planned to do. But you said you're doing it because Hezekiah prayed. Right. The two work together. God doesn't have a problem with it. So what's happening there? Are you doing it because you planned it, Lord, long ago, what you now bring to pass? Or are you doing it because Hezekiah prayed to you and asked that you do it? Which is it? Both are true. But how is it working together? Well, what happens at the end of the story? Uh, Isaiah 37, 36, you can just look there. So I don't leave you without the answer. You might know, but just reminding you maybe. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, all these were dead bodies. 185,000. All because Hezekiah prayed or all because God had a sovereign plan that he was definitely going to accomplish that he was now bringing forward. Both are true. So how does this work? I have just a quote here from A.W. Pink. Not sure if you know who A.W. Pink is. Uh, he lived from 1886 to 1952, wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God. This is a great quote about prayer here. Just listen to what he says. God has decreed the means as well as the end, and among the means is prayer. Even when the prayers of his people are even, let me slow down, even the prayers of his people are included in his eternal decrees. Therefore, instead of prayers being in vain, they are among the means through which God exercises his decrees. Did you hear that? I think he's right on. I think that's exactly right. So what he's saying is that God decrees things. That is, he says he's going to do something, and he does it. He brings it about just as he said. Not only does he decree and bring about events, but he also decrees and brings about your very prayers that you are praying. Could God be that personal and that sovereign? So here's my summary on why do we pray and what's happening when we pray. I would say it this way. So when we pray, we submit our wills to God's will, humbling ourselves before him as the sovereign king of the universe. And in turn, God uses our prayers to bring about his sovereign purposes. So when we pray, yes, there is something happening internal about us, isn't there, when we pray? Is that we are submitting ourselves to God's will. That should be what's happening, is that we're submitting ourselves to God's plans, to God's purposes, to God's intentions. And we're humbling ourselves before him. Why? Well, because he's the king, after all. And in turn, God is using our prayers to bring about his purposes, not ours. So maybe this is different than the way that you've been thinking about prayer or have thought about prayer in the past or maybe are tempted to think about prayer is that God is bringing about your purposes because he has power. So seek out God because he's all-powerful 
and he'll just do what you want him to do. If you can bend God's ear, then he'll do what you're asking him to do if you pray in Jesus' name and faith. As if we have anything to offer the counsel of God, as if we have any information to offer God that he doesn't already know, as if God cannot see perfectly into all time and come up with the best plan rather than your plan. There is nothing that we're offering God in prayer. We're not offering him new information. We're not offering him a better idea. We're not trying to change his mind. We're not trying to change God's mind when we pray. Prayer does not change God's mind. So then why do we pray? We pray because we are told to pray, number one. That should be good. That should be a good enough answer. Our Lord has told us to pray. Pray. The scriptures tell us over and over, don't they? Pray. Why? If God's going to do what God's going to do, why pray? Well, at least two things here. Number one, it humbles you before your God and puts his will above your own. Number two, God uses your prayers to push forward his divine sovereign purposes. So do prayers actually accomplish something? Yes. You know, having the view of God's sovereignty that we do actually, it doesn't diminish our desire to pray. It actually should increase it because we understand what God's doing in prayer. God is using our prayers to actually accomplish something. Yes, if he were not all-powerful, if he were not sovereign, we would have no hope and no faith that when we pray, he actually does something with it. Right? Why did God decide to act on the Assyrian army? Because Hezekiah prayed? Or because it was God's plan determined long ago? The answer? Yes. Right? The answer is yes. That is correct. All of the above. And I hope there's at least some understanding of that as we move forward. If we don't have a motivation to pray, if we don't have theological issues resolved in our mind, we're not going to act on it. If you don't see it as necessary or urgent to pray, or if you see it as, why pray? Because God's going to do what he wants to do. Or maybe you think that you're changing God's mind by praying. We have to have a proper understanding of what prayer is actually doing when we go to pray. So when we pray, your kingdom come, what are we actually asking for? So just two questions that we're going to look at tonight. The first question is, that is after the initial question. Three total questions. The second question, what is the kingdom of God? That's, we probably need to answer that for asking for it to come. And then when we pray your kingdom come, what does it mean that we're praying for it to come? What does that mean? Your kingdom come, is it here? I'm asking for it to come, but I don't even know what it looks like if it did come. I don't even know what I'm asking for. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We sing about that. It's a good thing to sing about. It's a good thing to pray. But what does it mean and how does it all work together? I think first let's ask, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, this is a, let me just tell you, that's a big question, first of all. And we are not going to answer all the ins and outs of what the kingdom of God is tonight. That's not going to happen. Uh, if it were cut and dry, black and white, then there wouldn't be just 
the New Testament replete with parables about the kingdom of God because it's so complex to understand. It's like this. It's like this. It may be compared to this. And so that's just constantly we're trying to wrap our minds around what is the kingdom of God, also called primarily in Matthew the kingdom of heaven. Same thing. If you heard the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the same thing. So there are two different perspectives that I just want to give to this tonight so that we can understand what it means for our prayer life. Because isn't that what we're talking about? Pray like this. So this is not going to be a, a giant discussion and we're going to walk away knowing exactly what the kingdom of God is after this. But I, I at least hope we'll have a good idea so that when we pray, our prayers might be channeled through proper understanding. The first thing we need to look at is this, is that the kingdom of God, first of all, Yes, is a universal kingdom, meaning that God rules and reigns over his creation. So if I were to say, whose kingdom is this universe? Who rules and reigns over it? You would say, I hope you would say something. What would you say? God. So when we pray your kingdom come, what sense does that make if his kingdom is already here and he's already ruling and reigning? He's already doing it. So are we praying for that? God, rule and reign over this universe. We ask him for him to do that. He's already doing that. He's not going to stop. He's not going to stop holding together the universe. He does that. He's going to continue to do that. Is that what we're asking for, though? God, continue being in control because you're just one step away from not being in control? What do, what are we asking for? But just a little bit on this, uh, just a few references. You know this, but Psalm 47, 2. Just listen to what it says. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. A king has a kingdom. And who is the king over all the earth and the kingdom? It is God himself, the Lord God. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules Overall, overall, what do you think is included in that all in that particular context? It literally is all. All doesn't always mean all. Some people say all, well, all means all, all means all. All means all of what? In this context, if his throne is in the heavens, he's saying everything else. The Lord rules and reigns over all of it, including all the people and all the kingdoms on earth which takes us to Daniel chapter 4. Thinking about how long ago we were in Isaiah, how long ago were we in the book of Daniel? Some of you weren't even around for that. We went all the way through the book of Daniel and we focused quite a bit on this particular, uh, this particular thing right here. But listen to what it says. So this is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, was a prideful guy. Loved his city that he built. Thought it was beautiful. He liked just hanging out, looking at his gardens and his lovely palace that he had created. Loved the fact that he was in charge of so many people and had so many beautiful things and servants. And then one day, God uh, made him go crazy. He drove him out into a wasteland, and it says that his hair grew long, and uh, he resembled a bird, and his nails grew long, and he, uh, and he couldn't, really didn't have sound thinking. And so the Lord drove him mad. And then when he regained his composure and the Lord gave him his mind back, 
Guess what he learned? I'm not as great as I thought I was. I'm not as powerful as I thought I was. I'm not the great ruler of the universe like I thought I was. And I learned who is. So he says in Daniel 34, 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He said all the inhabitants of the earth, right? Including him, King of Babylon. No one greater on the planet than King of Babylon. But he said all the inhabitants and all the kingdoms are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is a powerful statement from the most powerful man on the planet at that time. What did he conclude? God is sovereign over this world, not me. And he just made that very clear to me. So in other words, there is a universal kingdom and God is the king of that kingdom. He is ruling and reigning over his creation and there is no one to rival him ever and there never will be. But there's another side to the kingdom and that is, (coughs) excuse me, that is the redemptive kingdom where God rules and reigns over his people in particular. So yes, there is a kingdom that, We are living, we live in God's kingdom because he is the king ruling and reigning, right? So we already are part of the kingdom in a sense. But yet again, we have Jesus saying, the kingdom is something that you have to enter into. See, just being on this planet doesn't mean you're part of the kingdom properly. But it's something that you have to enter into. But if God is already the king ruling and reigning, how is the kingdom something I have to enter into? But it is. So that just adds another element to what the kingdom of God is. So there is a universal kingdom of God where he is ruling and reigning over his creation, no doubt about it. He's doing that. None can rival him. But the second part of this is that there is a redemptive kingdom that people are called to enter into. So what is that? I just picked eight verses from the book of Matthew is what I did. Um, We're in the book of Matthew in the Lord's Prayer. And so I just went through the book of Matthew and I found eight references to the, the relevant references to there are many more than eight, uh, to uh, this redemptive kingdom. Okay, so they're all just one verse each, and so I'm going to read them for you. The first is found here, Matthew 3, 2. Matthew 3, 2, and what does it say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Anybody know who said that? What? John the Baptist. That's right. So then, After 400 years of prophetic silence, what is the first thing spoken? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is coming. It's here. It's near. At hand means near. It's it's right there. It's a step away. It's it's coming. It's here. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 5.20, by the way, just thinking it is near, you might say if we're only thinking about this universal kingdom of God, it's already here, it's never gone anywhere. It's been God's kingdom from the beginning. So obviously there's a different aspect to this kingdom, right? That's just making that point clear. Um, (coughs) Matthew 5.20, 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's something that we have to enter into, and it takes righteousness to get there. Matthew 7.21, we skipped our reference here. Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Remember how I said in the beginning that the will of God and that God's kingdom is coming, is very, they're very closely associated with one another, and it's true. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew twelve twenty eight. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it is by the Spirit of God that I am casting out demons, that you are actively looking at and saying, did Jesus cast demons out of people? Yes. He said, if it is true that I'm casting demons out by the Spirit of God, then guess what that means? That the kingdom of God has come among you. Matthew 16, 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then finally, Matthew twenty-six twenty-nine. I tell you, I will not drink again this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So from these references, what I want us to see is that the kingdom of God, uh, it, there's a redemptive kingdom here that is an exclusive kingdom where God is ruling and reigning over his people in a special way that is almost a subset of his universal kingdom, Right? So, that being a very general understanding of the kingdom of God, what does it mean then when we pray for this kingdom to come? So, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're not just pray, saying your kingdom. We're actually asking something to happen. Your kingdom come. Jesus already said that the kingdom of God had come among them. Did it go somewhere? That we need to ask for it to come back? Where is the kingdom of God? That it might come. Good questions. If we don't know what we're praying for, are we going to pray for that thing? Not really. I mean, your kingdom come, I guess. I, whatever that means to you, just, I guess, let it be. Wouldn't it be better if we kind of had some idea as to what we were asking God to do uh, when we say your kingdom come? So God is king over the universe, true, and we desire that all people everywhere submit to his rule from the heart and faith. I'm going to say that again because it's important in tying these two ideas together, okay? God is king of the universe, universal kingdom. But we have a particular desire that we see all people everywhere submit to his rule from their hearts in faith. Does everyone that you know or everyone in this world that's part of God's universal kingdom, are they submitting to his rule? Are they saying, God is my king? Are they bowing down before him, willingly giving their lives and in service to him as their Lord and master and king? Do you want that to happen? 
That's part of what we're praying for when we say your kingdom come. So what I, I think there are three things here that, that we should have in mind when we're praying your kingdom come. Okay, so just number one. We pray that, number one, people would enter the kingdom. When we say your kingdom come, we are saying we desire that your kingdom come among us and that people are entering into it. Uh, I do have a few verses here. Um, I'm going to pick and choose. John 3, 3 through 5. John 3, 3 through 5. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus was really struggling, <laughs> was really struggling with this idea of what Jesus was talking about. But Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So we're praying that people would be born again. That they might see and enter the kingdom of God. We pray for that. When we say, God, your kingdom come. Come and manifest itself in this person's life that they might see the kingdom. So Colossians 1, 13 and 14 is good. Uh, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, right? So we've had a, had a transfer in uh, rulership, right? So on this, in, in, in this universal kingdom, uh, it is true that God allows Satan an amount of power, correct? And the amount of power that God offers to Satan is still under his rulership, right? It's still under his sovereignty. He can't just do whatever he wants, but there are people that Satan keeps as part of his little kingdom here in the kingdom of God, right? He's saying, I have these people and they're all following me and that's the kingdom we all belong to. We have to be transferred out of that kingdom into the kingdom of God. How do you do that? By faith. By faith and submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. John makes that pretty clear for us, doesn't he? In his letters. Let's just go to the second thing here. So I think we get that idea. Uh, but the second thing that we're praying when we pray your kingdom come is not only that people would enter the kingdom, but also that people would be growing in the kingdom. Um, Romans fourteen seventeen. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you know that when we pray your kingdom come, part of growing and living in the kingdom of God is having peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you belong to the kingdom of God, it's about righteousness, it's about peace, and it's about joy. We should be desiring that these things come and are part of our life when we say your kingdom come. Because the kingdom of God is not about all this other stuff. It's about righteousness. It's about peace. It's about joy in the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 1.5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you might be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. 
as we are already part of the kingdom of God, God is working in us that we might become worthy of the kingdom that we already belong to. So there's change happening to us. And then finally here, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. We exhorted each one of you and we encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So as people who are belonging to a kingdom, our charge is that we might walk in a way that is worthy of the kingdom that we belong to. So when we pray your kingdom come, another part of this is that those who belong to the kingdom are growing to be worthy of that kingdom. The word we give this is sanctification, that we might be growing, maturing in Christ, becoming more like him. Okay, finally here, number three. So not only that people would enter the kingdom, yes, true. Not only that people would be growing in the kingdom, yes, true, but also that Christ would consummate the kingdom. Meaning that Christ would bring all things to a close in perfection and completion. That is certainly part of the kingdom of God coming. A very important part, I would add. Going back to Daniel, Daniel 2.44, it says, in the days of those kings of God, of, uh, the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, and that kingdom will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people, and it shall break into pieces all those other kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is the kingdom of God. And notice how in, in the parables, you go back to them and you look, and and there's, there's another part in Daniel about a mountain growing bigger than all the other mountains. And, and it, the kingdom of God seems to start out humble and small and it grows until it is the only thing left. And it's shown that this is the great and mighty kingdom of God and there will never be another, another to rival it. Matthew twenty five thirty one, When the Son of Man comes in glory... And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, the goats on the left, and the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So uh, this is the end. This I mean, it's the end of, of one thing, but the beginning of eternity. And Jesus is bringing all things into complete perfection in the end. And so he's saying, see, we have, we have like this, this taste of the kingdom here, right? We have a taste of the kingdom, but we don't have the fullness of the kingdom. So even though the kingdom is something that we have entered by faith in Christ, it is yet something that we will enter. It's something that we're part of, but it's something that we will be part of. It's something that we experience now, but we will experience in full. And so it's, it's a praying that God would bring these things to completion. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. And so this is just Paul reminding Timothy that as you live, remember, Christ is coming back to complete and fulfill all that he said and bring his, his kingdom, uh, uh, to bring his ki uh, kingdom to its completion. I want to end tonight from a passage in Revelation 22. Okay, so if you, I know that was a lot of references, I know. Um, 
but if you just want to turn to this one with me, it's the last place we're going to go. So turn with me to Revelation 22. And so this is John, the same John who wrote the letters of John. And here it is at the end of the book of Revelation. And something is said significant concerning the consummation of the kingdom. And I just want to look at it. Because there is a desire here that should be our desire is, is the point that I'm making. So when we pray your kingdom come, there is a particular aspect of this and a particular desire that is good for us to have as our desire. It was John's desire. It should be our desire. Let's just look see what, what it is that he's saying. So Revelation 22, beginning in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What does that mean to the readers? That he's the descendant of David, that he's the king. He is the true and proper king on the throne. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, who is he who testifies to these things? There's a lot of, lot of, lot of things going on here. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Jesus. Who says amen? Come, Lord Jesus. Huh? Yeah, that's right. Specifically, John. Right? There is a particular desire here. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Who said that? John. Right? So he's saying, here are Jesus' words. Surely I am coming soon. And what is our response? Come. Come, Lord Jesus, let it be so. So there should be a desire in us to see his kingdom come. In every way, we desire to see his kingdom come. And so when we pray, we pray, your kingdom come. All right, let's pray together now. Lord, as we've talked about these things tonight, uh, it is an incredible reminder of perspective for us. We do pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that people would be entering into your kingdom. We pray that your kingdom would come and that we are continually growing and, and changing and becoming worthy by your spirit to be part of this great kingdom that you have called us into in your glory and might. But then also we are praying that the Lord Jesus would come and would bring all things into complete perfection and completion. It is a good thing that our Lord would come. And so we do pray, come. I pray that you would help us understand these things more and more. That we would see that it's a desire, it's a mindset, it's a heart condition. That we want the Lord's prayer to be shaping us, that we might be praying according to your will, according to your word. 
and that we might see your will be done. This is what we desire. Again, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We thank you for being able to call you Father. And we're thankful that we were taught to pray. And I pray that you would continue to teach us and guide us and lead us together as a church. That we might be glorifying to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name together. Amen. All right, thank you guys so much for being here tonight. And uh, I will see a majority of you.